Let's do this. We're going to go back over to Matthew 5. So I'm preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I'm now, this is really message four of Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through this particular Sermon on the Mount message. I'm going much slower than I thought I would, but doesn't it always happen that way? Sometimes there's just itches I've just got to scratch. And so um, my plan is to hit 2 Corinthians once I finish this, uh, Lord willing. Let's stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word, a very short passage of Scripture in chapter 5. And then we're also going to read chapter 19. If you're going to read Matthew 5, you're going to have to also read Matthew 19. So it says in Matthew 5, in verse 31... Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32. But I say, the king says, to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reasons of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now go to Matthew chapter 19. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. We don't interpret Scripture with this is what I think. It's this is what God has spoken to the original recipients. What does God's Word mean? Not just our own fanciful interpretations. Chapter 19 of verse 3, it says this, And some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing Him and saying, Is it lawful for man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Let's go to the Lord. Thank you for your word. And help us today to capture what's going on in the context here. This message isn't about evaluating those who've been divorced. It's really about what what did God's word say about marriage and how had the Pharisees, how had the traditions of men corrupted, entangled, and changed God's word about your intent for marriage. So help us in that. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go to Matthew, back over to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to have to consider both these texts. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to point you back to something from Sermon on the Mount, back into chapter 5. And just uh, offhand here, just starting, there are several in here, and could be online, that you've been through a divorce. Anytime someone mentions a message about divorce, and this message really isn't about divorce, it's about their incorrect interpretation and assumptions of what they had said about God's word regarding divorce, right? So this is really today about a kind of correction, a repentance that God was calling them to. 
So if you have been divorced, contextualize this message. This actually isn't really for you in the sense of, uh, I'm just, you know, I didn't pull this out. This is coming along in the text. But what I want to point you to is, what was the intent of what Jesus was speaking into here? What was he trying to actually correct in the text? And how can that bring change and evaluation that we can worship God and glorify him and do right as we make disciples and teach and train them appropriately? Now, let's pull back once again. Go to chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, he said. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill, to fill up. Not to do away with God's law in the Old Testament. Not to do away with the Old Testament. Not to, um, as we've talked about, and hitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That's not what Jesus came to do. He is showing a, the perfect representation of what, it, what God meant when he gave the Ten Commandments. What God meant when he set out his law. He perfectly lived it, but also he perfectly teaches on it. He fulfills it. In chapter 5, he accurately teaches them what they had gotten wrong about what God had taught in the Old Testament scriptures. So he says, once again, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came not to abolish but to fulfill. You remember on the Maus Road, Jesus unveils the law and the prophets. He lets them know that these Old Testament scriptures, they speak of me. You come to verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law till all is accomplished. So Jesus says, the smallest part of what God has written in his word, it needs to be examined. And you, we need to come to the conclusion of what has God said. Romans 3, 4, I've said it many times. But let God be true. And all men liars, they're philosophies. So he says in verse 19, Whoever then annuls the least of these commandments. What are these commandments Jesus is talking about in the text He's talking about the commands that God had given in the Old Testament. Whoever knows one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a righteousness that we would have in Christ that would surpass the scribes and Pharisees, that of a new heart, but also at the same time, the scribes and Pharisees, known to be the most religious people in the text we've already been discovered, we discovered last time, they had corrupted God's authorial intent in the Old Testament. They had changed it and maneuvered in such a way that they made it mean something that it didn't mean so that it would fit what they wanted. It's called the traditions of men. It was some of the rabbinical teaching of their rabbis. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful. You know, not everybody on YouTube, not everybody you listen to, not everybody on a podcast, and not every book you read is thus saith the Lord, right? God's word can be trusted. I'd be cautious about what men tell you is true if it doesn't line up with God's word. So Jesus says, I'm going to help you. So we looked last time, a couple weeks back, at verse 21, we looked at the idea of anger. And he said, look in verse 21, you've heard that the ancients were told. He's speaking about what their own pharisaical interpretations they had basically taught, as long as you don't kill somebody, you can have all the anger in your heart against them. God's okay with that. That's not true by the Scripture standards in the Old Testament. He says in verse 27, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus says, But I say. So 
in their teachings, their rabbis, in their traditions of men that they were teaching, these Pharisees were teaching, as long as you don't actually commit adultery, lust isn't an issue. Now, just so you kind of know, when you read the Ten Commandments that God gave, gave them in Exodus 20, actually, why don't we just show you this, right? Hold your place. I want to show you Exodus 20. It's the second book of your Bible. Just sometimes we catch this. We don't, we don't catch this. So if you go down to Exodus 20 and verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 14. This is the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Does everybody see that in verse 14? Seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Now look at the last commandment, commandment number 10 in verse 17, about coveting. You shall not covet, right? But notice in the text, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's what? Wife. So people come and they'll say sometimes, well, Jesus was actually bringing a new understanding of God's law in the Old Testament when he said, if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And I would go, no, no. It was already there a long time ago. Coveting is dealing with lusting, is dealing with desire. It, it already, Jesus is just simply informing them that this whole time they were wrong. They had acted like you're, they were keeping the seventh commandment if you didn't commit adultery, but he was saying, no, if you had lusted, you've already broken a tenth commandment. You break the tenth commandment, then it's a commandment of desire. You'll start breaking the others, especially when it comes to adultery. So just so you understand contextually, here's what's going on. Jesus is correcting their false interpretation and their additions to God's word that, that would fit their cultural ideas and their sensibilities. Now, as we look at today's text, we looked at Two, this text has two of the Ten Commandments, and then we look at some of the other commands that we see in the Old Testament, and Jesus once again comes in and says, this is what you've been saying, but this is what I say. I'm the king, right? So your additions and what you think is wrong, I'm right. Your sensibilities and your modern ideas aren't, aren't correct, but, but mine are. And I would say if there's any topic matter in our current day that I think men have corrupted what God is teaching um, and have added their thoughts, it's the idea of marriage and divorce. I really think that. I think man has so corrupted it, put in his own thoughts, and has twisted it. And Jesus deals with it here. He helps them understand this is the authorial intent that God has. And what I love is Jesus pulls it all the way right back to the beginning. Some people go, how do I know Genesis really is God's word? How do I know Genesis 1 and 2? I can take it literally. Well, Jesus speaks of it literally, right? So it, it must be actually a true and accurate book. Look in verse 31. So Jesus says, Now it was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You see that? Does everybody see that? Now he's quoting from an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy 24. So he is quoting from God's word. But what he's trying to get at is, when you look and parallel this with Matthew 19, you understand that basically they had taken Deuteronomy 24 and had perverted it to, to, and, and to mean this idea that if you didn't like the way your wife cooked your toast and burnt it, you know, you're okay to get rid of her, Right? Can you imagine that? Why did we get divorced? She burnt my toast. 
But that's the kind of silly things that were going on. They, have, they were teaching that, well, since the law of Moses said something about a certificate of divorce, God must be so okay with divorce that for the smallest reasons, for this just isn't working out for me anymore, we can do away with it. That's the teaching. It was a certain rabbinical school uh, named, named after a guy named Hillel. And the teaching was, for the smallest matter, you could actually divorce your wife because Moses said in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, that if you divorce, give her writing a certificate. So they took it, corrupted it, made God's words say what they wanted to say so that it would fit their sensibilities and their self-exaltation. Now, the same thing kind of happens in our culture today, just to be honest with you, it really does. By the way, I'm not condemning all divorce. There actually isn't such thing as a biblical divorce. Um, there is such thing as a biblical remarriage. Um, verse 32, look at it. He says this, I say to you. So Jesus, when he says, I say in verse 32, he's saying, let me correct your false thoughts from verse 31. In verse 32, he says, now I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reasons of sexual immorality... He's talking about adultery here. He's talking about some kind of sexual immorality. He's talking about the Greek word pornea. Pornea is a junk drawer word. Lots of things fit into that junk drawer word, right? We're so wicked that if God were to list every kind of sexual immorality, we would find the one thing that he didn't say and then say it's okay to do it. So he pulls a big junk drawer word, sexual immorality. So he says in the text, you guys have been teaching something that's contrary to the word of God. You've been saying because there's this writing a divorce that Moses gave that you can flippantly and for whatever reason you'd like to satisfy your selfish desires, you can divorce and God's okay with it. And Jesus says, actually, God's standard is adultery, some kind of sexual morality that brings, can bring death to a marriage. Now, by the way, if someone has ever committed adultery, that doesn't mean that marriage has to end. It does mean that that marriage may have a biblical warrant for divorce, but that doesn't mean it always has to end in divorce, right? There is a such thing as forgiveness. There is a such thing as redemption. But what we do see in the scriptures is the heinousness of adultery is this idea of death. In fact, originally when you see the, in the Old Testament, the law actually says that when a person commits adultery, what actually happens? Death. By the way, you don't see that all the time, do you? Did you see anybody kill David after Bathsheba? I mean, did you, even, you definitely didn't see anybody kill Solomon. And man, if there was any guy that actually went epic on this whole thing, it was Solomon, right? I mean, this guy, man, if you thought you've experienced depravity to its utter end, this guy blows everybody out of the water. You'll never top Solomon. But Jesus comes in and says, you're saying something about this sacred institution and thinking something about this sacred institution that is not in accord with thus saith the Lord. So I say to you that unless this divorce is happening as a result of sexual morality. So he was winding back their false interpretations of God's word that they had presumed on God so that it would fit their sensibilities. And... We do the same thing today. Not maybe the same way they do it, but we do the same thing today. Now do this. Hold your place there and go over to Deuteronomy 24. So Deuteronomy 24, go right to the beginning of your Bible, right? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible. 
Deuteronomy 24. Called the second law, a, sum, a summation of the law. You know, every Israelite king, you know what they were supposed to do with the book of Deuteronomy? They were supposed to write it down with their hand in, while around a Levitical priest. And they were supposed to tuck that Bible in and keep it with them and walk around with it and memorize it and love God's word. Why was David a man after God's own heart? Probably because he wrote Deuteronomy and read it a lot. The kings that were really godly kings were kings that probably wrote Deuteronomy and read it a lot, right? Deuteronomy was a book that would help you to love the Lord. When Jesus was on earth and he quoted the Bible, guess what Bible he quoted from the most? Anybody got a guess? Deuteronomy, right? If when, it, when the Bible talks about loving the law, loving his commandments, loving his statutes, it's talking about the book of Deuteronomy. I think our whole, uh, if, if you were ever to run for office, if you were ever discipling somebody running for any kind of public office, I, I tell you what you would really want to encourage them to do. Take Deuteronomy 24 and write it out so they could see what, what does righteousness look like. Now, the interesting thing about Deuteronomy 24, by the way, Someone asked me one time, do you think David was carrying around Deuteronomy 24 when he saw Bathsheba? Probably not, right? Probably not, didn't tuck it, right? Which probably tells you what happens when you walk away from God's word. But chapter 24, I want you to read it. I want to tell you, honestly, there is so much disagreement about this text of scripture right here. What was meant by the original recipients? I'm going to give you a couple of different of the schools of interpretation. And then I'm going to go... It really doesn't matter for what we're talking about today, right? Because Jesus goes further than this text and goes all the way back to Genesis and says, regardless of this idea of the writing of divorce, and regardless of what you think, that was not God's intent. You, God's intent was actually one flesh. You leave mother and father. You cleave to each other. That was God's authorial intent. But Matthew, um, sorry, Deuteronomy 24, just read it with me. Or let me read it and you follow. <clears throat> Don't read with me. That'll mess me up. <clears throat> I can't read in rhythm with everybody. If a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now that word indecency in her, there is all sorts of disagreement about what that actually means. One school of thought is that that word indecency um, has to do with they're married and he finds something that's undesirable sexually with her, something that he did not know about, was not disclosed, and so there's this kind of quick annulment of, of the marriage. Others would say, well, we actually can see what Jesus says about this text in Matthew 19, and this actually has to do with some form of, of, of adultery or sexual immorality that can bring death to a covenant, Right? So I think those are really good trans, uh, interpretations. What I would tell you is something's going on here, and it seems to be of a sexual nature. It seems to be something that's not good. And it says, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out from his house. Now, there have been some who've taken this and have said, actually, this, this was given as more of a protection for women because men tended to... Um, to kind of, kind of divorce women and get what they want. And so this is a way to protect women, that they had some piece of paper that everybody can know that she didn't belong to another man anymore. So there's lots of different schools of interpretation, but I, I'm reading this because I want you to understand this is what Jesus is referring back to. <clears throat> but I'll, I'll, I'll show you more. Verse 2, he says this. 
<clears throat> and she goes out of the house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns again to her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. And this is an abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not bring sin on the land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. So in this law of Moses here, it was if you divorced her, you put it in her hand, you couldn't remarry her later. Now some would say there's different reasons. Some would say it's because that you would be presuming taking advantage of her, then trying to reestablish the dowry, right? Or some have said that this is actually protection. Some have said this is actually put there so that you couldn't be hasty in your divorce. You couldn't just declare divorce and, and you had to actually get some paperwork. And just so you understand, it, if, you, if you've ever been through divorce, it takes a little bit of paperwork. It's not an easy process. That's a really good thing that it's not an easy process, right? When things are a hard process, it makes things harder to do. By the way, just a side note. If you're married, if you're discipling someone who's married, don't you ever... Ever, 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 ever mention that word divorce. If you're doing that, you need to repent. If you're online, repent. Name that sin before God. You never threaten divorce to your spouse. Unless you have a good, solid biblical reason. You have a spouse that is unrepenting in their adultery. That's different. But I'm talking about it's so... It happens so much now that people, cavalier, will mention, well, maybe we should just get a divorce. That's not what God's Word wants you to do. That's not God's Word. Doing that kind of thing is exactly the kind of idea that Jesus is trying to go against. Now, there also would be some that would say, well, the only standard that we see that God has is for adultery, some kind of sexual immorality. So actually, Deuteronomy 24, the, the idea is she has done something in the world of adultery, and thus he gives her a writing of divorce, and this settles the matter. Now, some would say this can't even be adultery, because in Old Testament law, if you commit adultery, you were dead. Well, how is he giving her a writing of divorce? She really should just be dead. So I'm just saying, there's lots of disagreement here on that, right? And I would love to have more discussion about it if you... If you want to stay after, let's have discussion, debate, let's do it. I, I want to do that. But the bigger thing I want you to get from me turning this text is they were way off. They weren't even in the stratosphere of what was meaning here. So here's what they did. They looked at this and said, hmm, certificate of divorce, all I need. <laughs> and then they just said, for whatever reason I want. So God said there's a certificate of divorce. They threw out the indecency in her. They threw out all those things and just said, if it just simply isn't working out, if I don't like her anymore, if this thing's not giving me what I want, if this isn't fulfilling all my desires and dreams, it's okay. In fact, it was rather encouraged. Now go back on to Matthew 5. So the debate of what that word indecency meant and what was going on that's not the point I'm trying to make ultimately here. What I'm really trying to make ultimately is they took that idea of certificate of divorce and created no-fault divorce, right? No-fault divorce, 
didn't happen, you know, with Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California establishing that was the first state to actually bring in no-fault divorce, right? Didn't know that, did we? Right? But that happened way before. That wasn't something new. There's nothing that man's doing now that's not new under the sun. Now go to Matthew 19. Now as you go to Matthew 19, here's what repentance looks like. Repentance looks like there's sin, there's God, and when I repent... I turn to God from sin, and I go to God. What is Jesus doing in the text? He's letting the Pharisees know. He's letting them know their traditions of men. They've been going after sin and Satan the whole time. They weren't accomplishing God's work. They claimed they were, but they were adding to God's word, adding their ideas, adding their philosophies of man. Let God be true, and the philosophies of man a lie. Let God be true and man a liar. God is faithful to his promises. Now, look right here in Matthew 19. I think this really helps us to layer it out. Look in verse 3. And, and, and I say that word repentance because I've been talking a lot about repentance through the Sermon on the Mount. Because really, if God's doing a revival, like if he's... If like what's happened in Asbury is, is, is going to have a lasting effect. And I know there's all sorts of, you know different opinions, but if God's doing a work of revival, it's, there's going to be repentance in God's people. And there's going to be a change of heart that results in a change of life, right? And one of the things that God's people will have to re-examine is the family. And if the family is the backbone of society, and when marriages break apart, there is something wrong. By the way, I will say this. People say all the time, you've heard this, there's just as much divorce in the church as there is outside of the church. You know that is wrong. That is inaccurate. There actually is not more diverse divorce among Christians as there is in the rest of society. But I will say this, I think in the future it's going to be like that if Christians continue to act the way we're acting. And what I'm saying is this, Christians do not act like Christians from years ago. They just do not. I'm telling you, we, we just do not. Even the very fact that Christians years ago would treat gathering with the church body and his word as something sacred, that they needed it to help, help, help them continue in the faith. They needed God's people. That isn't really like gathering on the Lord's Day with God's people now is if it's convenient for me. But for generations before, it was so essential. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you're online and you hear this, I'm right here speaking to the choir. If your marriage is struggling... The most dangerous thing for you is to sit up in your house and miss church. I'm just going to say it's dangerous for you. Now, it's not going to foolproof your marriage, but it's dangerous for you. It's dangerous not to be in discipleship groups. It's dangerous not to be in the Word. It's dangerous not to have family devotions. If you're having problems in your marriage and you're thinking divorce is the option, have y'all tried praying together? Have you tried family devotions? Have you tried cracking open the book? Have you tried telling brothers and sisters in Christ so they can pray for you, they can disciple you, they can help you? Have you tried that? No. A lot of times this is what people do, is they do exactly what Jesus is trying to counteract with these scribes and Pharisees, and, and, and people just do what they think is best, you know? But Jesus comes against it, and he, he says some great things. Look at verse 3 of Matthew 19. So the Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. 
By the way, that's not, he's not one guy you want to test, okay? It's not going to go out good for you. And saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? <laughs> they were trying to test him. They were thinking, ha, ha, ha. We know what Deuteronomy 24 says. We know what the rabbis have been teaching, that, that certificate of divorce can be for any reason. We know what the school of Hillel, these rabbinical teachers are teaching. We're going to catch him. We're going to catch him. Because if he starts talking against our rabbis, then something must be wrong with this guy. No, nothing's wrong with him. There's something wrong with them. He's the king. What he says is actually right. And if there's anybody that knows how to quote scripture and quote scripture in context and quote scripture with God's authorial intent, I'm pretty sure it's Jesus. Amen? Verse 4, he says this. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Uh-oh. He's quoting from Genesis. They thought they were going to trip him up with Deuteronomy 24. Uh-oh. He just goes back to creation. I'm just saying, Jesus is not the person we want to test. By the way, I will tell you this. Here's what I found. When people, when Christians are starting to contemplate divorce, what they'll do is they'll, they'll scour the book for justification, right? And my question is this. Have you, as much as you scour the book for justification for divorce, have you decided to like scour the book and just discover Jesus? I mean, like something might actually change if we actually opened up the book. Look in verse 5. So Jesus points back to the word, and he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's he quoting back to? Genesis 2. He's going back to the word. But he's actually taking them to the original beginning. Verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Well, therefore God has joined together. Let no man what? Their interpretation was, well, since there's a certificate of divorce, let's create all these ways. Look what God has now. Look at all this liberty we have now to do what we want, right? And that liberty, they turned into license. It does, we do a lot of that ourselves sometimes. The liberty that Christ has given us is never meant to be turned into license. That's what they did. Jesus says, no, let me tell you, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, remember, contextually, we do see in the scripture that unrepented adultery, yeah, that is a biblical justifiable reason. Not always the first option. You know, God can do things. God can bring people to repentance. But yeah, that is, uh, that, that is a real reason. But in the text, what he's trying to get to is really this idea of you guys have been making all these new rules and all these ways to and and calling and, and basically presuming on God's grace and making him agree with your theology instead of you agreeing with his theology. And what I tell you is this, from the very beginning, what God has joined together, let no man separate. By the way, I, will, I want to speak on something also when it comes to divorce, this idea of separation. People ask me, what does the Bible say about separation? It says nothing about separation, right? The Bible knows marriage and non-marriage, Right? When you even see the word separation in the Bible in, in talking about marriage, it's actually referencing divorce. It's another word for divorce. There's no such thing as separation. People say to me, would you ever advise separation? The only time I've advised it is when there has been some kind of criminal danger um, to the kids and to the spouse 
that you get them out of that house, you get them safe, you call the law, you let the law deal with them appropriately, you then call for the elders in the church to deal with that person appropriately. That's what needs to happen. Sometimes out of the wisdom of, uh, out of a wisdom issue, you may have to do a separation. But here's why most people separate. Just get this. Here's why they do it. Not because of danger, not because of abuse. It's this. We're going to get different places, and we're going to become, we're going to get ourselves right, and then we're going to come back together. Doesn't that sound so romantic? The problem is it's not biblical. The problem is the people will separate, and guess what happens? They start to feel better. Of course you feel better. Why wouldn't you? I mean, if, if there's two sinners in one house, and now you don't have to deal with someone else's sin, just your own, you can start kind of living life as you want to live it again, right? And this is what happens inevitably. People separate. They get their own separate places. They live separate lives. And what inevitably happens at the end of it, they just end up divorcing anyways because they actually are happier in life. Yeah, you're happier in life because you're... There's nothing to struggle with anymore. There's no sanctification. There's no obeying God. You just get to do exactly what you want to do. People ask me, Nick, do you think it's separation is the right way to discover whether or not you should be married anymore? I would say no. Actually, separation is a way to bring your marriage actually into divorce. Now, I'm not talking about abuse and things of that nature. I addressed that a while ago. I'm talking about I don't like you. You don't like me. Let's get away from each other kind of thing. It says in verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's speaking of divorce, but I'm telling you, the modern idea of separation is man's idea. It's the same kind of junk that Jesus is addressing in the text. This idea of we're just going to bring in extra things and call it God. Now, I don't care what counselor you see, and that counselor, you know, you see a counselor that says, hey, I think y'all should separate. This is my professional advice. That professional is not speaking for God, and that professional does not answer for your relationship before God. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. What a couple needs to do, actually, is bend the knee in repentance. Look at the log in their own eye before they take the speck. They need to take a position of humility. Take a position of the cross. Instead of separating, repent. Instead of separating, bow the knee. Instead of separating, bring in witnesses. Bring in the body of Christ to help mediate. That's what God would want. Amen? Verse 7. So they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Aha! They caught Jesus, right? They caught him. They got him right where they want him, right? So look right here in verse 8. He said to them, Because the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it's not been this way. Now remember, the divorce in question here is not... And at this point, he's, he's not dealing with this, this idea of sexual morality. He's like th this divorce issue that you, it's because of the hardness of your hearts that this had to happen. This is not God's way in the very beginning. And the way you have been doing your school of Hillel here, this teaching that because there's a certificate of divorce, you can divorce as much as you want to because God wants you to have exactly what you want. He says, this is not God's way. In fact, it's hardness of heart. It's hardness of heart. 
What causes unbiblical, mar- unbiblical divorces? It's hardness of heart. Once again, let me ask, what causes unbiblical divorces, church? Hardness of heart. Here's the great news. We got a new heart in Jesus. This is why, I only, this is why people have asked me and said, Nick, will you marry a believer and an unbeliever? Nope. Can't do it. Right? I give you no promise, right? Now, if, you're, if you were both unbelievers when you got married and one became a believer, you know, you stay in that marriage. That's what the Bible says. But, but I, from the outset, I couldn't marry those two people. There's, they'd have no, I, I give them no um, hope for repentance or help. By the way, just a side note, this is why you want to be a member of a good church, so that there is accountability for your marriage, right? Not the only reason, but one of the big reasons. I don't give people hope when, man, I, I'm just telling you, we're, we're, have you ever noticed, if you've been a Christian long enough, have you ever noticed how deceitful and how delicious sin is sometimes? Am I the only one that thinks sin is kind of tasty at times? Am I, am I my own place over here? Okay, all right. Okay. I know you're like, ooh, he used the word delicious for sin. Well, it is. Isn't it? The pleasures of sin in Hebrews 10, 24, but only lasts for how long? A season. Yeah. It's not great, but it tastes good at first. So any of us can be in this position. That's why we need the body of Christ. We need God's people. We need people that will hold us accountable. We need God's people. We need God's word. Verse 8, he says, because the hardness of your heart, God, God permitted to divorce your wives. But forgetting, this, this has not been the way. This has not been God's way. You're not doing God's way. You've misinterpreted God's word. You've taken God's word and made it say something that it doesn't actually say. Here's my, ugh, the burden of my soul. I am so scared that God's people are doing the same thing today just in a different way. We, we really are. We're taking this idea of divorce and creating every kind of reason that we can. Even recently, there was a guy, um, and I've recommended his resources quite a bit, um, Wayne Grudem, Systematic. It, have, how many of y'all read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology or know about it or have it? Or maybe I've read it, maybe you've at least bought it, but it's gathering dust, right? It's around, right? Nick's told you about it. It's a good book, right? It is a good book. But a couple years ago, Wayne Grudem came out and said, that according to his understanding of 1 Corinthians 7, that there are more reasons than abandonment by an unbeliever and adultery to, that justifies a biblical divorce. And, um, and he came to that conclusion because he basically said a Greek phrase in 1 Corinthians 10, 15 was found. In, uh, you can look at that Greek phrase in, in secular literature, and it can mean more than one thing. And so he brought it over and said that it means can mean more than one thing than what Paul meant in the text of 1 Corinthians 7.15. In the text of 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul's referencing actually abandonment by an unbeliever. Wayne Grudem said, no, it's actually more than that. Now, here's the reason I'm telling you that, not for you to go, oh, thank you, Nick. <laughs> no, well, I'm telling you this to say, be watchful and careful. Because if there's, if there's something you want the Word of God to say, if you Google enough, you'll find someone who will agree with you. You understand that, right? You know just about any sin in life, you can find some Christian group out there who has written a book, has put it together, and says, no, 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 no. That was just for them. Culture's different now. This is how you can do it. Are y'all, are y'all tracking with me on this? So 
not the hardness of your heart. Have you considered, have we considered that when we disciple people, all of us are discipling people, more than likely you're discipling family, friends, people at work, co-workers, that the greatest problem in their marriage really could be themselves. It could be their own hardness of heart. Now look at verse 9. He says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, this would be where some would go, hey, Deuteronomy 24 is actually talking more about adultery. Jesus is giving the exposition of it. He's referring back to it. And I think that's a sound interpretation. But Jesus comes in and says, y'all have said it can be all these reasons, but let me bring it back. What I'm telling you is, are we dealing with the death of a marriage through adultery? I mean, by the way, that's, that's why death happened, right? Because in, in, when death happened because of adultery, because... This is why adultery is so bad. It kills a marriage, all right? It's a death knell. Just a side note, for those of you that go on business trips, for those of you that are in some kind of emotional, adulterous idea with coworkers or people in your neighborhood or people online or Facebook or any of these other places, um, just so you understand, that's a death knell. That's bringing death to your marriage. You are bringing death to your marriage, right? It's not innocent. That person that you used to date in high school that you're on Facebook with and you're doing your secret messages, right? And people, you might be like, oh, is Nick, no? (laughs) No, I just, don't we all know how sinners act, right? Because sin is tasty at times, isn't it, right? It's delicious. But it ends up making you throw up, doesn't it? So, all these kind of things. It brings death. It's death. That's just why this is the most heinous thing. That's why, men, you, you can't understand sometimes where the lust of what pornography does, and you're, I know some men kind of think like, man, why is my wife so upset about this, right? Because you're bringing death. I mean, it brings death and destruction. It is offensive. So he says, whoever desires divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So, hey, I didn't make this up. This is what Jesus says. So, I mean, there's a standard that God has that we've got to make sure that we don't listen to what the world says around us. Their standard is not God's standard. God's standard is, he says, when I create a marriage, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. And unless we're dealing with unrepented adultery, abandonment by someone who's an unbeliever, like for, for the general scope, man. And, and by the way, there's even some disagreement on some of that, right? But I would just say, man, let's be careful and cautious. And by the way, here's the purpose of marriage. It's not to give us the fairy tale Disney ending. The purpose of marriage is holiness. The purpose of marriage is to show forth the glory of God through his son Jesus, right? And when you read Genesis 2 and it says God took two and made one in one flesh. When you read, go over to Ephesians 5, it actually says this is referencing and pointing to Christ in the church. What's the ultimate reason that, we, that our marriages are intact? Because we're hoping for a better day? That might not be bad. We're human beings. But ultimately, the reason we keep working on our marriages is for the glory of God, to show forth the glory of the gospel so that we can baptize and teach people His commands, Right? By the way, just a side note, and this isn't in the text, this is free. You know what I discover in 
over, I think it's been 25 years I've been in some kind of, I've been in pastoral vocational ministry. Here's one thing that almost no one really thinks about when they are divorcing. I'm talking unbiblical divorces. I mean, you know, we're not dealing with adultery here, but here's what I've discovered many times. People will walk into that and then they'll get on the backside. I mean, because here's what, honestly, can I be honest with y'all? Here's what most people do. They're simply following their feelings. That's what they're doing. They're just following their feelings, all right? And their feelings told them to do something. And then they found a lot of times some, <laughs> some cloak and dagger way to justify it in God's word. Let their feelings kind of pull them away. They go and make those decisions. And then here's the, the hardest thing I've seen. I've seen is you got a husband and wife, they got kids. They decide to follow their feelings, not thus saith the Lord. They divorce, and then he shows up, and, you know, there's like another woman, you know, parenting his kids, right? Or vice versa. And, I'm, and, and, and you don't actually approve of that person, but there's nothing you can do anymore because the divorce has happened. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Almost no one thinks about that. By the way, I'm not saying this, that if you've been in divorce before, for you to kind of, this is not, this message is not trying to get at that for you. What I'm trying to get is, we have got to repent of doing the very things they have done in that text. They presumed on God and tried to make God's word say something it didn't regarding marriage. We are doing the same thing today. God says, what I put together, let no man separate. When you got married and you said, I do, it was God's, I mean, if it wasn't God's will, it wouldn't have happened. Right? One of the worst things you can ever do is sit around and going, did I marry the right person? Did I marry the right person? Well, if God is sovereign, yes, you are married to the right person right now. And until there is a biblically justifiable reason, God does not want you to think any other way about this. Now go to verse 10. I think verse 10 is kind of funny, but it's kind of sad. And his disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. <laughs> you get that? Like, it's like, man, this, are, you, are you kidding me? Like, is, is, is this what you meant? Man, it's better not to marry. That tells you how secular and how worldly and how pathetic their thoughts of marriage were. That, the fact that his disciples would go, ooh, man, I don't know. This is a lot more than we've been taught. Um, whew, man, this is just going a little further. I don't know if we should get married. Man, better stay single, right? That's what they're saying. That also tells you how far they had strayed from God's word. And here's the scariest thing the whole time. The whole time, most of these people thought they were doing exactly what the word had said. That's the scary part. They thought it was God. So they thought their serial divorce, the, all their serial divorces were actually crowned with righteousness because of Deuteronomy 24, and they were dead wrong. Let God be true and men liars. Now, I'll end with this. Where's the good news in all this? Here's the good news. See, the bad thing about divorce, I'm sorry, about adultery, is it brought the death penalty, which not everybody got it in the Old Testament. That was the max penalty. Not everybody got it. Here's the bad thing. It brings death. It brings death, right? And then you look at all these things in the Old Testament and you're going like, man, there was a call for a penalty of death for a lot of things. Very true. Um, by the way, 
no one got, I mean, anything that God told you would bring death, it wasn't like you were ignorant of it, right? I mean, God had told you, right? So no one's really innocent. The only reason we get so, so much problem with this kind of stuff is because we're just really weighed down with too much secularism in our heart. We really are, right? God is holy and just in all that he does. But one of the things I want you to pay attention to, you see so much death, you see death for adultery. And here's one of the things. You see so much death because God is holy and will punish and will come against sin, Right? And I'm glad God did that in the Old Testament. <gasps> Here's why. Because that tells me how heinous my sin is. And this tells me what God requires. And why didn't David die? Who should have? Why didn't Solomon die? Who should have? Why haven't I already died? I should have. Because there would come someone who would become death for me. There would be someone the greater David, the greater Solomon, who would be the sin sacrifice to take the death that I deserve. Amen? So I'm glad for a righteous God all through the Old Testament. I'm glad for that God. That God points me to Jesus Christ. That God makes me thankful for Jesus. And the one thing that's going to let us continue to enjoy the covenant of marriage, God's way, is if we've got the Son, if we've got the one who actually has died in our place. So if you're not bowed the knee in repentance and faith to Him, now's a great time to bow the knee in repentance and faith to Him. Receive Him as Savior. At 16, I came to faith, and I've never doubted that, and I've never regretted it for the rest of my life. Would you stand to your feet as our worship team comes? We'll sing to the Lord. We'll have some announcements. We'll gather together. We'll edify the body. We'll take communion together. Please stay and be a part of all this. Is what we do all together as a body of Christ. Would you go to the Lord with me? If someone is online, Father, if someone's in here, they have not come to repentance and faith. They have not seen their sinfulness. They don't understand that they deserve death. They deserve the wrath of God. They deserve to die physically and spiritually, that they're dead right now in their sins. But Jesus, will you bring life to them? Will you show them their sin, their need for a Savior? Will you gloriously save them like you did me when I was 16 years old? Will you do that? And for the rest of us, would you let us repent? Repent from our self-absorbed, selfish, self-exalting, interpretations of scripture that we repent of searching out people and counselors and theologians and people who will just agree with our self-exaltation will you let us be a people who come back to jesus who says and i say and i say thus saith the lord thus saith the lord will you let us be a people of the book will you let us be a people of thus saith the Lord. Will you let Scripture bleed out of us? If you cut us, will Scripture fall out of us? Will it be what's natural? Will not our philosophies and our ideas and, and our ways, would you burn those up and let them only be your ways and your thoughts? May we be not driven by our emotions and feelings, but may we obey and enjoy you and then experience the emotions you want us to have. We need your help in this area. For your glory, for the good of your name, the good of your people, and the good of our families. 
And God's people said, amen. Amen.